This is the History Worth Saving podcast. Subscribe, follow, and share your story ideas at historyworthsaving.com. And a special thank you to our friends at The Conversion Mill for making this episode possible. The Conversion Mill turns your existing website visitors into paying customers. Find more at theconversionmill.com. That's theconversionmill.com. On this episode of History Worth Saving, we're talking to a friend of mine that I've known now for over a decade. Her name is Allison Morrow. Allison is one of these people that just looks at life and looks at it from a different lens. And when you tell her that you have a good idea about something, she pays attention. She's had her own good idea within the last few months. At least it's a good idea to her. She quit her job in television, a major market reporter and anchor just walks in one day and says, I'm done. She's going out into the woods. Now, she's not alone. She has a husband. He's a former recon Marine, so she can handle her own with a bear. But she's out on the West Coast, and she is taking this passion for life, this enthusiasm for the environment and the wild, and she is embarking on a, on a journey that I can't wait to follow. You can follow her on YouTube. Right now, they're restoring an Airstream trailer. I mean, it, it's kind of cliche. I'm just saying, Allison, <laughs> you're joining me now from, where are you? Are you out in the woods? Because you've left. Hello. Right now, I'm in Ellensburg, Washington, which is central Washington. It's about two hours from Seattle, and it could not be any more different. I'm looking at brown hills and coolies <laughs> and very dry uh, landscape versus Seattle where it's probably raining right now and it's super green and there's tons of land out here and it's wide and expansive and the people over here called those folks the West Siders and look at them suspiciously and the people in Seattle look at these people as the East Siders and look at them suspiciously. Washington is a fascinating state. Anyone who's covered politics out here or has done any kind of uh, journalism out here knows that it's a really really interesting place to be a journalist, which is like what you said I've been doing for the last six years here and over 20, actually 20 years in TV. But Matt, you and I met over a decade ago when I started out as a reporter. Yeah. So 12 years altogether doing that. And you've always had this wanderlust for a great story and the environment is very near and dear to your heart. And you said something to me that I, I just want to get off the top because I think it's I think this is important. You and I were talking about environmental reporting and how you, you've just had this thirst for it. And you said, but something that, that really jumps out at me is, is that it is almost assumed. It's assumed that anyone who has a passion for the environment or environmental reporting must, must be uh, on the left. Somehow the left has hijacked this. And, and that really, really kind of stuck in my craw because <laughs> I, I've never heard anybody say that and, or, or challenge or challenge that. I don't even know how we got on the topic, but but you you have this open mind about everything, and and I think that that just sort of fits into your personality. So so what you're doing is not about left and right. It it's it's something deeper than that. Tell me about that. Well, that didn't surprise you though when I said that, did it? I mean, didn't you already kind of think like, yeah, I guess now when I sit back and ponder that for a little bit it really does seem to for some reason the loudest voices i guess maybe you know it's not necessary to say everybody but the loudest voices when you talk about environmental activism if we're going to use that word tend to be 
left-leaning Democrats. Did that surprise you when I said that? It always surprises me when you say anything because you're just that kind of a person. I'm, let me let me peel the onion back just a little bit deeper because you have a you have a master's in divinity. So yeah. it, there's nobody that can pigeonhole you. You're a horse girl, uh, <laughs> for the lack of a better word, a real badass reporter. I mean, yeah. you have you've been all over the world telling great stories, and you're you're fearless, just fearless. Well, I really appreciate it. I don't know. I'm married to a special operations Marine, so I don't think I'm fearless, but I do try to um, live life uh, close up. That's what I try to say, like close up. And um, I like to smell it and breathe it and see it uh, really, like really, really tangibly and not just like read about it. That's what I loved about being a reporter was that we always used to say that we had a front row seat to history and you get to see it firsthand back to what you were talking about though. And actually it does relate to seminary. The one thing that I guess I didn't really learn it in seminary. It had always kind of been a part of me, but seminary helped me put words to is that if I ever can say that, Hey, if I woke up in your shoes, Matt, or that other person who lives 20 minutes from me or three hours from me, if it's possible that say I was born to their parents and their circumstances and lived their life, that it's possible I could think exactly like them, then I may be able to disagree with them, but I can never be superior. And I think that that's what we're struggling with as a country right now is that we can't we can't look at each other and disagree without having superiority complexes. And what I have learned over time is that it's by chance. And I mean, we may say by the grace of God, we end up where we are, but I didn't choose my parents and I didn't choose my education necessarily. I mean, not, you know, the first probably 12 years of, um, you know, or, or 18 years before I went off to college and I started paying more attention, but all that stuff that happened to me as a little kid being born in Pittsburgh and then moving to Florida and having a horse when I was growing up and parents who are both doctors and that kind of was just handed to me. So if I have a feeling that it's possible, say I was born here in Ellensburg to a cattle rancher and, you know, woke up at, at, with the sunrise and went down with the sunset and, and, and live the life out here. That's very different than the life I grew up in. If it's possible then that I would think like that cattle rancher, then though I may arrive at different conclusions based on the evidence that's presented to me, I can't look at the cattle rancher or the environmental activist on the Seattle side of the mountains and say, I'm superior to either one of you because it's just by the grace of God or chance that I ended up where I am anyway. So I think that's the place I try to start from is to look at people on the eye and say that let's talk like equals. Let's not talk like I have one up on you or you have one up on me that we can actually learn from each other if we start from a place of mutual respect and understanding that we could both think exactly like each other given different like circumstances i like that you know this whole podcast the reason it got started and i said this uh by the way if you haven't already joined the facebook group for history worth saving please do that uh sign up there join up there and sign up for the newsletter because we're always talking about this kind of stuff uh the the pew research center did us did a story on this uh about a year or so ago and and i just i i, I latched onto this and I've, and I've never forgotten it, but it was talking about how Americans don't know their neighbors. And I've been saying this uh, since the very first episode, that we just don't know our neighbors. And 
out in the, the rural areas, like uh, where you're calling me from right now, which sounds like you're in a car, uh, probably because it's the only quiet place you have right now. <laughs> Exactly. outside of the airstream but but places like that they have about a about 40 percent of the people there say that they know some or most of their neighbors but in in these mm-hmm. high urban areas and these high concentrated areas literally like nobody knows their neighbors i mean it's alarming we can't we can't like these people if we don't know them am i am i i mean am i wrong in that assumption no and i think it really boils down to not just an attitude but in a lot of cases, I think it comes from survival. I mean, if you're in an area where you, like in Seattle where we were living, you've outsourced your very basic needs to people maybe half a world away, then you have really no need to know who's growing your food or who's making your clothes or any of those things. If you don't want to, you can live a life of pure ignorance. And when you're in an area where you're more dependent on your neighbors just by virtue of having to. I mean, in, in some cases, I think like humans are humans and maybe the folks that lived in rural communities, if they ended up in a city, would fall into the same pattern. I don't know. But out here, it does tend to be more like just in the couple of weeks even that we've been over here, cutting firewood or this, these small community economies depend on each other to survive, not just from like a physical sense, but economically money exchanges hands a lot closer in a place like this in an area where the economy is based on knowing your neighbor. I really believe that that's how these relationships have evolved or devolved in an urban area to be what they are, because in a small town, the economics themselves drive relationships. You know the person who's the grocer, right? I mean, it's a, probably a small town grocery store or a general store or something like that. You know the cashier at the hardware store. You know um, the coffee shop person or the baker or the butcher. I mean, you know all these people that supply basic needs for you because that's how the economy works. When you go to an urban area and you have a much more globalized economy, I think that's where it all starts to get sanitized to the point where we start participating in systems that we're ignorant of and then damage both ourselves, our communities and the environment through practices that we don't know anything about because we're not looking at them the way that communities in smaller towns stare at each other face to face. I mean, think about it. Just from like a food safety perspective, if I'm somebody like I am who just went to the guy and his wife who lived down the street from me and bought a quarter of a cow, they are my neighbors. They're invested in my health because the last thing they want is for me to come driving down the street and say, I have E. coli poisoning or something like that. They care about us because we live right next door to them and it's quality control is being a good neighbor. Now, if you're in Seattle and you're buying stuff from several states away or some cases overseas and another country, where is the accountability from basic relationship? And that's why I was saying that I don't like it when the environmental or or food health that perspective gets all divided from left or right, because a lot of times the more conservative small town communities who are skeptical of government regulation and bureaucracy have 
higher quality standards for themselves without those regulations because they know each other and they don't want to ruin their neighbor's property. They don't want to ruin their fishing hole. They don't want to damage the relationships that they have because they, they know each other, you know, they can't hide. And I think there's a lot to be said about accountability based on relationship. There's a farmer I follow. He's a pretty well-known farmer if people are into this kind of thing his name's joel salatin he was featured in the book the omnivore's dilemma he's a farmer in virginia and written a bunch of books i have to recommend everything i want to do is illegal it's a great book but talking about polyface farms up there in, yeah, in virginia farms. Sure. exactly yeah and uh joel says something in that book that i i'll never forget you can't legislate integrity and I think that's so powerful. I can see how when you have relationships with the people around you, that is like self-regulating because these communities out here who shake each other's hands and look each other in the eye, they are invested in making sure that they have good relationships with their neighbors because they see each other and depend on each other and you don't want to make them mad. But when you're in a community where you don't know who you're screwing over or they don't know you, then there's, there's, there feels like there's the sense where like, well, now we need the government to step in. Now we need regulation because people don't know each other. I think you could have an argument. Does that work? Doesn't work? I don't know. But in an area like this, there's a lot more accountability just based on that economy of relationship of just the way things used to be a hundred or 200 years ago when you knew the people who lived all around you and you just didn't want. I love it. All right. So you, you have, you've quit your job. You're, you've moved the Airstream. Now the, the Airstream, this thing is a, is a 1992 model Airstream trailer that you and your husband are, are restoring and you're going to live in it right. off gridish which is yep. the word that you've <laughs> off -grid sort of yeah. coined. You're not quite off-grid, but you're, you're pretty far off-grid. Right now, we're pretty on-grid because we're renovating the Airstream, and we've finished gutting it just before winter, actually. So I quit my career, as you said, and it really was the way you said it. I just kind of went in, and I'm like, well, I think I'm out of here. Um, though they did know leading up to this that the Airstream was – been very vocal about it. I have a YouTube channel. It's been no shock. Anyone's been paying attention. We had built a gantry crane to lift the shell off of the frame because we have to do some frame repair. We had to demolish the entire crane so that we could fit it into the U-Haul and build that again. But we're hoping to have time next year and then move into it. Right now, we're living in a small cabin on a horse farm so that my horse can be on the property with us for the first time ever. She was born when I was 11 and I'm 38 now. And she's been everywhere with me. She went to college with me. She's done my reporting jobs with me. And now she's finally gonna be right outside the house. So I'm super excited about that. Um, and then on top of it all, this is a big surprise. I have not told publicly yet, but we're having a baby. <laughs> Oh my goodness, Allison. In May, so. In an Airstream. I know, I know. So I did an Airstream. Well, that's crazy. I mean, that's great. And it's it's wonderful all in one. Congratulations, though. So exciting. It's Thank you. No, I mean, it's interesting to be like trying to live a modern life when it comes to communicating what we're doing, which requires internet access and cell phone towers and that kind of thing. 
but also wanting to live this life that existed long before Wi-Fi and cell phone towers. So it's, yeah, we're still figuring it out. But um, yeah, I mean, to be a, it's funny to be first, we're both first time parents, obviously. And, um, and I've quit my career now, the only career I've ever known, which is, was a wonderful, but also crazy, insane career. And then and lived in cities the entire time and obviously when you're moving up the chain in television news reporting you just keep getting into bigger and bigger and bigger urban environments because that's that's how it all works i was the only as far as i know there may have been like one other person but i'm pretty sure i was the only full-time environmental reporter for a tv station in the country and so i had a really good job but and it was like perfectly suited for me um, but I wanted to live it. And the, unfortunately, the problem is in today's world, TV stations haven't necessarily gotten to the point yet where they're like doing remote work enough that you could have a person come in and say, hey, you know, this environmental reporting thing I've been doing for the last five years. Well, I totally drank the Kool-Aid and this is what I want to do now and live it for the rest of my life. I want to like grow food and have livestock and live sustainably and be closer to the land and, you know, have a kid and raise them to care about this kind of stuff and slow down and pay attention and have better relationships and all those things that go along with like the other side of being a reporter who really gets it, who sees it for what it is. And, and they're like, well, you know, we kind of still need you in Seattle. So unfortunately, you know, we'll see. I mean, you, you have this podcast and I have a YouTube channel and we're all trying to figure out new ways to communicate with the public. But I think I'm at the point where it's like I want the content and the form to look the same. I don't want the form of my life to be antagonistic to the content of my life. Does that make sense? No, but I'll think about it and then it'll make sense. <laughs> Ponder I'm not it. that smart. So <laughs> I, what, I, what I love about your story is that it, it you just, you're, you're not on the treadmill and it, you step back and you're, I'm not going to do that. I do work out. I do work out. I get out, that. But I just ran a marathon <laughs> three the, months pregnant. The Marine, the Marine Corps marathon nonetheless, right? In yes, DC. I, I mean, did. Yeah. Again, again, you can't you can't make this stuff up. But what, what I love about <laughs> it is that you just look at it differently and, and you're so unafraid. I remember we had a, a talk a conversation about a year ago and, and I knew you were going to do this. I, it was just a matter of time. And I was so happy to see when you did it, when you just you said, OK, I'm done. We're going to we're going to do this. And your husband, who, who I've never met, but I look forward to meeting uh, incredibly supportive. He's on the channel with you. And the channel right. is under your name. It's just Allison Morrow, which will be mm -hmm. linked into uh, to this show story uh, as it airs, so people can subscribe to it and follow along. And don't think you're getting some, you know, Birkenstock wearing uh, hippie no. that, that doesn't shave because that's not you. I mean, no, that's no, not it's you. Not, You've managed it's not me. to put it all into one. And uh, even though it sounds cliche, it it's not you. You are the Whatever the opposite is of a cliche, that's what you are. <laughs> well, I figured out over the years of getting really into where my food comes from and knowing farmers and following these environmental controversies that oftentimes most people only see on, you know, a, a clip here and there on the news. I was seeing it firsthand. I realized, I mean, it became very, very clear to me that we are ultimately as individuals in charge of 
the solutions and the problems. And that unfortunately, in a lot of ways, we have given up our responsibility to take care of each other and our land to government or maybe other organizations that don't necessarily have everybody's best interest at heart. And there's a lot of politics involved in bureaucracy and it just doesn't get done as fast as it could as if individuals and their communities as consumers sort of just wake up and say, Hey, well, what if I bought different laundry detergent or what if I grew my own cucumbers? I don't know what, what kind of difference could I make? And Matt, honestly, this really does at the end of the day, I tell people, and I said this when I was a reporter, I'm not really fighting for the environment. I feel like I'm fighting for the soul of a country that has lost its sense of feeling like it matters, like your life has a purpose. People who are waking up, going through the motions, doing whatever mainstream news tells them to do or some celebrity they're following on social media and not thinking that, they are a powerful, intentional human being who has one shot at this and can make a difference if they just start to believe it. It's just a matter of of switching your mind to I just follow and go along with it to I have a unique purpose on this earth and no one else can fulfill it except me. And I want to wake up every day on fire for that and make a difference. And So your thing may be, you know, my husband's really into, um, you know, taking care of veterans and he does uh, anti-poaching work in South Africa for a veterans organization. And that's his thing. And my thing is, you know, protecting the environment and um, and working with like agriculture uh, uh, sector to to do better there. And and, and maybe scientists sometimes I, I work with to see what is the latest research showing and as a consumer. But like every. Everybody has at least something that they can offer their communities and the world around us. And so, like I said, it's to me, the environment or whatever your particular thing is, that's secondary to having a relationship with people where you can start talking to them about the fact that they they can do great things and that they're not just born to live 50 percent of what God created them to be. And so that's really what I'm after, like for my own life is to say that too, like, what is it that is your purpose and your calling and then let God fill in the blanks, but stop waking up, just accepting the status quo and complaining or focusing on what you don't have and start creating things that need to be here. And that's how we win back a lot of these different areas that we've lost is by each one of us sitting back and putting the, you know, they always say you got a finger pointing back at yourself when you have, or what is it four pointing back at yourself when one's pointing at the other, you know, person and looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, how can I make a change? And I can tell you this much, like until you get to that point, it's also very difficult to look at somebody else and start saying, Hey, you should do this or you should do that. I have found that to be totally unhelpful. And that's interesting to say as a reporter who spent her life giving people information and saying, you should do this and you should do that because that's kind of what our industry does. But 
it doesn't work. The very basis of people changing their minds and attitudes is trust and empathy, in my opinion. Once you start to build trust and empathy with people, then you can start working together towards great things. And so that's how I approach all of this now is not the information or the quote facts about stuff. It's to say, I want to start building relationships of empathy and integrity where different people can learn that we can work together for a higher purpose. And then from there, is it the environment? Is it veterans issues? What is it that you were put on this earth to work on? Start from a place of empathy, build a community around that, and then go after it with everything that you have. Well said. And you know, I, I, I was down at my buddy Randy's place the other day, and he's, he's telling me he's frustrated. And, and just to paint the picture, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of different types of people. And, uh, and Randy, Randy lives out in the woods in a, in a single wide trailer. And, and just to paint this picture mm-hmm. and, he, and he's standing there and he's like, I, I'm getting away from it all. He said, I'm just ready to, to move somewhere, maybe out West and just get away from it all. And I'm like, what's keeping you here? And he's like, well, what do you mean? He goes, I, I've got a life built here. And I'm like, Randy, you live in a trailer. You, you are literally the only person I know that could pick up and leave right you now. You just go. Yeah, just right. go. I'm like, there's nothing keeping you here. Yeah. But, but we're, we're moored to our own expectations. And, and it's, I get it. It's, it's harder than it sounds. But, but as someone that's just done it, uh, it it's, it's, a, it's a freeing feeling to, to walk yeah. in and do that. And, and you obviously had a plan in place. And I don't want to give the plan away. I want people to go to your YouTube channel and watch it because it's unfolding. This is a continuing story. It's not breaking news. It's developing news, uh, as you would have said right. a few weeks ago. And, and this is a story we're watching. And I think it's a great yeah. story to watch. Well, I, I met a guy last summer who had ridden the entire Pacific Crest Trail on two wild Mustangs that he adopted from these holding facilities. People may know that, you know, we're having issues with a lot of wild Mustangs out on public lands and what do we do with them? And no one's really quite sure yet, but a lot of them end up in holding facilities and need a home. If you like horses, I think that's what I'm going to do. My next one's going to probably be a wild Mustang. We'll see how it goes. But he adopted two and he trained them. And he rode all the way from Southern California up to Washington on the Pacific Crest Trail, which is like the Appalachian Trail of the West Coast. And I did a story on him when he passed through our area. And I said, man, Trent, I mean, I want to do this. Like, how do you do this? How do you just wake up and get on two horses and go horseback for thousands of miles? And he said, you just wake up and decide you're going to do it. And then the rest just you have to you figure it out. The details fall in place. But like the hardest part is just saying, you know what? I'm going to do this. And it's true. It's really not that hard and that complicated, actually, once you set your mind to it. We decided that we wanted to own an Airstream to live in. That was going to be the beginning of our plan. And we kind of have this long-term dream of ours that we're putting into reality, but it's probably going to take a lot longer than we originally set out to do with the homestead and all that good stuff. But as far as the first step, it was like, okay, well, how do you do that? What's the first step? Buy the Airstream. Okay. Identify the Airstream. What's your price point? Where do you find it? Here's the one you want. I mean, once you, you know, you, you identify the goal, the rest of the stuff is the easy part of it. It's really just getting yourself and your mind in a place where 
you're not afraid to just pull the trigger on whatever it is that you've been saying for years you want to do. That's the hard part. And then the rest of it, that's the icing on the cake. That's the easy stuff. You'll figure out how to do all of that. I mean, for me, once I finally walked into the office in downtown Seattle and said, you know, I'm moving to central Washington and we're going to work towards getting into this airstream in the near future. And thanks for everything. It's been great. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was like, you know, identifying how am I going to make this happen with paying my, you know, the bills and, and when, where are we going to, you know, am I going to actually do it? Like, am I going to actually, actually do this? And then once it was like, yeah, no, I'm going to do this. Then it was, then the rest of it, the actual quitting and moving, I mean, that was, that just happened. That, that was just the end result of a choice that I made in my mind a year ago. That's not the hard part. The hard part is the choice. Well, and, and the other the other great thing about this is that that is your dream. And uh, for someone that's listening to this, as you've said, it, it just go find what it is that you're passionate about and uh, and, and do it. My, my step is, uh, is is pray about it and, and really dig into that and get confirmation and, and then go do it. And I we're yeah. not talking about making some foolhardy selfish decision, a decision. That's why I'm out of the broadcast business. Some foolhardy, <laughs> selfish decision. This is this is something that you, you've really thought about a lot and uh, and spent a lot of time in council. But but something you can't escape when you're when you're dealing with with big decisions like this mm-hmm. are, are are people that stand in your way and say I, I don't think you should do that. I you know I really don't. oh yeah. And there's usually some selfish you mm-hmm. know desire rolled up into that with them. They don't want you to leave. They don't want you to do you know because it affects them. But uh, you've pushed through that too. Yeah, well, I think one piece of advice to anybody listening, if somebody uses the word should or tells you what you should do, it's typically what they want to do or they're worried they're not doing or something like that, and they're projecting it onto you. That's one term I learned in seminary. I was a psych and counseling major in seminary, and so we call that projection, and that's a very common psychological defense mechanism. So always be wary when to, unless unless you're six and your parents tell you to brush your teeth. But uh, other than that, you know, yeah, all right, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But when someone says you should and wags their finger at you, always be wary, like, what's behind that? The second thing is I watch somebody on YouTube a lot who says that to get to this point and what another thing we're really lacking right now is self-awareness. I mean, we're so distracted as a culture. We never really have to sit down and be quiet with ourselves, never have to, you know, do anything where we're not connected to constant stimulation. And I think where this started to unfold for me really was that when I moved to Seattle for this position, I started to hike and I spent a lot of time in the woods with my dog by myself. Sometimes I talk to her, but she doesn't really say much back. And so that's where I started to find that even though I had spent most of my life as an extrovert talking to people, I'm in the communications field, I actually like being by myself. And I like being quiet. And the more I spent alone, the more I started to figure out what I really like, not just what my parents wanted me to do or what people who, you know, meant a lot to me, what they thought I was good at and should do. I started to know Allison versus the version of Allison that other people around me would tell me about myself. And that's the first place to start really is like, well, who am I? And have a sense of self, like you said, um, spend time in prayer and meditation and, and 
talk to God about this kind of stuff and, and really not just like talking, but like, just be quiet. You know, sometimes it will just come to you as you're, like I said, hiking through a mountain in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, cause if you start to force it, I think, and I'm, I'm guilty of the timeline and impatience and all that stuff. Cause it's like, well, once I do this now, it's like, all right, I made the decision. Now I just want to get in the airstream and get it done. And I'm really bad at paying attention to the journey and seeing the journey as something that's just as informative, if not more important than the end game. Um, but you know, once you get to the point where you're really starting to spend enough time in, in quiet and solitude and whatever it is that you do to re to rejuvenate and, to listen to your highest purpose, then it'll start to become clear. And I got to tell you, like when you're walking the path, I mean, there are definitely hiccups and, and there are people who are going to try to keep you back, but there are also things that are going to work out better than your wildest dreams. And just as a, as an aside to talk about that real fast, I knew, like, I really believe this was the right thing, like moving to this area and, the lifestyle that I really felt in my heart that this is where God was bringing me. And I, I remember thinking, gosh, I just, my, I want my horse on the property. I've been wanting to have my horse on property for as long as I can remember. Cause I was a little kid when she was born and I've had to drive in right now an hour, now two hours to go see her. I just want to be able to wake up and have a cup of coffee with her and throw a bale of hay and clean poop out of her stall and all the good stuff that I paid other people to do. And I just like, Oh, I just, I really, this is, this has got to be it. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. But as we were moving out here and I were looking for property and everything was falling through, I mean, it just wasn't working. It would, places were either too expensive or they couldn't have a horse or they didn't want the airstream or just things that just made it perfect except for this one thing that was never going to make it work. And so we had to give up on it. And I remember saying to my husband, okay, either God is going to come through at like the last minute with something better than I could have ever imagined, or I got this all wrong, you know? And I would be remiss if I didn't say, like, there are those moments where like, maybe I did, maybe I got it all wrong. Maybe maybe this was a total failure and I, re I read it wrong. Um, and Lynn, he's just better than I am at this. I guess maybe when you spend many, 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 many days in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East getting shot at, you start to have a little bit of a bigger perspective about faith and trust than maybe somebody like me. Um, but he believed, he was like, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. And two days before we really had to have a decision about where we were moving, a friend suggested I call another friend who suggested I call another friend and just randomly ran into this woman who needed somebody to rent her house on a 10 acre horse farm exactly where I needed to be where sassy can live and she's like hey if you throw my horses a couple bales of hay then you can be here for free so we live in this house where we pay rent but my horse is gonna be there and I'm gonna do all the things I want to do and we're gonna be able to afford it and it's it's better than if I had you know tried to jerry-rig all this stuff myself it all worked out and you know what didn't help it work out was by constant chronic worrying about it. And so I'm trying to practice just being patient and paying attention and trying to, at the same time as I'm working towards the goal, trust that the process itself is just as important and the messages that God is telling you through all of that matter too. And that in some ways, maybe you're not ready for that end goal until you've gone through that gauntlet to get there. And then 
you get it and it means so much more. So don't be in such a rush to get all the way ahead because the gifts come at the very beginning as you're taking your journey, not just when you arrive at the promised land. I'm going to play that back and listen to it about seven or eight times as I continue to struggle through this. You know what? You know what I realized this morning? And we're all out of time. I'm sorry, Allison. You're going to have That's to come okay. back. But what I realized this morning, there's this uh, there's this young rapper that I saw on. Uh, I was I was doing something there on the the Instagram thing that we have to keep up with on all this. I don't understand all of this social media stuff. But anyway, that's another day. But I was <laughs> on there, there, and this 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 rapper, his dog, his dog, has nearly a hundred thousand people on Instagram. Right. And I realized yeah. I'm like, you know, I if if the dog can do it, so can I. I'm gonna make it. It's it's the gifts along the way. But listen, Allison Morrow, M O R R O W. And one L Allison. Don't forget that. We're going to quick link it. It'll be super easy. Just just subscribe on YouTube. And even if it's just to watch from afar, trust me, you're going to want to follow along with this. Will you come back on and be the unofficial, official environmental yes, homestead anytime. reporter here on History Worth Saving? Because I think it's great. I will. Yes. And thank you. This is such an honor to be on your podcast. No, Matt. it's not. I really appreciate it. No, it's it. not. But yes, thank you for is. thank you for coming on and a huge congratulations to you and Lynn. You're having a baby. Yay! I know. <laughs> the dog is still getting adjusted to the idea that she's not going to be number one, but it'll get over it. She'll get yeah, she'll get over it. Thanks again, Allison. Best Thanks, of luck Matt. to you. All right. Follow okay. her on uh, on YouTube and wherever she's at there. Allison Morrow, a, a great woman doing incredible things. Don't you, don't you feel good now after hearing that? I'm fired up. I'm ready to go get on with it. Listen, follow us if you can on Instagram. It's at History Worth Saving and join the Facebook group. Please, the group is so much easier to communicate with you on. So if you join the group, we can talk. If you post something on the page, as dumb as I am, I'll never see it. So join the group and we can continue this conversation. We have a newsletter that goes out once a month. You can find it on the website. Also, my new book, my new book hits stores in December and online. You can download it. It's going to have an audio book, too. Love to have you. It's Tales from High Bluff, stories my grandfather would like. Thanks for being here. Remember to get out there and meet those neighbors. I mean, you heard Allison say it. This this can correct the course of this country just by meeting our neighbors. Until next week, I'm Matt Jolly. So long for now, everybody.